You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Got a secret? Can you keep it? Swear this one you'll save. Better lock it in your pocket. Taking this one to the grave. If I show you, then I know you won't tell what I said. Cause two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Smile like you've been told a secret Now you're telling lies Cause you just want to keep it But no one keeps a secret No one keeps a secret Why? When we welcome my friends, welcome to the Corbett Report Podcast I am your host, James Corbett Podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan On this 28th day of February 2010 I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to The Corbett Report, old and new, and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and ClimateGate.tv. I'd also like to ask you to support those websites that support us, including ZeroPointRadio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, RadioForAll.net, and Archive.org. As you may have noticed by now, this is a very special edition of the Corbett Report clocking in at almost two hours, and it is one of the most important episodes that I have ever released, containing some of the most crucial information that we have seen over the past decade. I cannot stress enough how important this information is, and if any of my episodes ever gets spread far and wide, I certainly hope it is this one not for the sake of myself or my own website, but for the sake of this incredibly important information. So, once again, I always urge my listeners to take a look at the source documentation for themselves, so please go to CorbettReport.com and take a look at the documentation list for today's episode in order to find all of the various pieces of the puzzle and many more that I have not been able to fit into this two-hour exploration, because they are all essential pieces of the puzzle and the more you explore and the more you dig up, the better able you will be to pass this information on to others. If you find today's presentation of this information to be particularly helpful or informative, then please help spread the link around. Or, as always, burn this audio to disk and pass it out physically. I ask for your help in getting this information out and rampaging it through the blockade of control that the corporate-controlled media and the governments themselves have instituted to stop you from getting your hands on it. We have an incredible amount of information to go through today, so without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for the 28th of February 2010. And now for the real news. More startling information has emerged on the U.S. newborn DNA database this week, confirming the worst fears of the program's critics. As reported by the Corbett Report last week, numerous state governments around the United States, as well as regional governments in other countries like Australia, have been secretly collecting newborn blood samples for a previously undisclosed DNA database. 
The blood samples were used without the knowledge or consent of parents, and when it was recently revealed that the baby's DNA was actually being taken without the parents' knowledge or consent, health authorities responded that the DNA was being used solely for medical research into deadly childhood diseases. A new investigative report in the Texas Tribune this week, however, proves otherwise. The new report shows that the DNA was in fact passed to the U.S. Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory to create a national law enforcement database. The database is eventually to be linked with similar data from other countries, creating an international law enforcement database constructed entirely from DNA taken without the awareness of the newborn's parents. Now, the Texas Health Department is in hot water for having misled Jim Harrington, the lawyer on a class action lawsuit against the program when it first became public knowledge last year, about the nature and extent of that DNA collection. Describing a meeting he had with the Health Department about the database during litigation, Harrington said, quote, I can't tell you how many times we sat there and they said, no law enforcement. They said, it's only about medical research. It's only about medical research. End quote. In related news, J.B. Van Hollen, the Attorney General of Wisconsin, called this week for a change in state law to compel DNA submissions from the public without resorting to criminal proceedings. In other news this week, an Al-Qaeda operative captured by Iran has provided startling details about how his terrorist organization was provided funds by the CIA to help destabilize the Iranian Republic. The head of the Jundullah group was captured earlier this week in the south of the country. Abul Malik Rigi says he met the U.S. agents in Pakistan who promised support for carrying out terrorist attacks in Iran. The Americans promised to give us aid. They said they cooperate with us and give me military equipment, arms and machine guns. They told me that in Kyrgyzstan they have a base called Manas near Bishkek and that in a place like this some high-ranking American person could come and we could reach an agreement on making personal contacts. The Americans said Iran was going its own way, and they said their problem at the present is Iran. Not Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban, their main problem is Iran. One of the CIA officers said that it was too difficult for them to attack Iran militarily, but they plan to give aid and support to all anti-Iranian groups that have the capability to wage war and create difficulty for the Islamic State. The news merely confirms what ABC News, the Sunday Telegraph, and others have been reporting for years, that George W. Bush signed a covert action plan to fund al-Qaeda-linked terrorist groups like Jundullah to start a campaign to topple the Iranian government in 2007. The campaign, sponsored by U.S. intelligence, has been linked to a wave of terrorist attacks in Iran, including an attack in 2009 that killed 42 people, including generals, tribal leaders, and bystanders. In a related story, the Senate Democrats have voted to extend the most controversial measures of the Patriot Act for yet another year, including provisions that allow the FBI to perform roving wiretaps on U.S. citizens, provisions that allow the government to perform electronic monitoring on a U.S. citizen without even showing any connection to terrorism, and a provision that allows investigators to look at the U.S. citizens' banking, library, or medical records merely on a declaration that the suspect is somehow related to terrorism. The Patriot Act was originally enacted in 2001 under the pretext of fighting the very Al-Qaeda organization that the CIA has been funding in places like Iran. Also making news this week, newly released documents from the Department of Defense indicate that U.S. Joint Forces Command had been monitoring Planned Parenthood and white supremacist groups in events of the 2002 Olympics in Utah. Although the juxtaposition of the abortion group with racist organizations may seem like a non-sequitur at first glance, the connection is in fact well documented. 
The founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, as well as the board members of the group's forerunner, the American Birth Control League, were in fact virulently racist eugenicists. Lothrop Stoddard, one of the board members of Sanger's Birth Control League, even wrote a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White Supremacy, in which he warned of a population explosion among colored peoples and a subsequent erosion of Western civilization. In a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble in December 1939, Sanger herself outlined her group's so-called Negro Project, which was a plan to, quote, hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal, and we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Then-Senator Barack Obama extolled the virtues of Planned Parenthood in 2007. Obviously, my hope under a universal health care system is that everybody's got access to basic care and we have less of a patchwork quilt of services. Uh, that, I still believe that it is important for organizations like Planned Parenthood uh, to be part of that system because many young women, for example, may be much more comfortable when they're in college or universities or other places going to Planned Parenthood clinics and services to get contraception, for example. In 2008, the group came under fire for agreeing to accept funds to specifically fund abortions for blacks in Oklahoma. Would it be possible for me to, to donate that money specifically for these, these minority groups so that they could have access to abortions? Yes, it would be. Wonderful. And could I specify that abortion be done, or those abortions be done for a particular minority group, or how does that work? If you wish, you can. Okay. So, for example, the black community in Tulsa, would it be possible to, to give the money specifically for that? You sure can. Wonderful. Great. The abortions will be done specifically for the black community abortions. I can, I will mark it in such a way that definitely it will. On a black baby? Yes. Thank you. Great. And in New Mexico. Um, can I make the donation specifically for a minority group? Like a specific group yeah. of color? Like a yeah. group of... I mean, like, I want the abortion to be for an African-American baby. Okay. And I was wondering if that could be possible. The exact amount we charge right now is $450 for an abortion. Okay, 450 mm -hmm. And um, we can definitely designate it for an African-American. Wonderful. Um, and in Ohio... If you specifically want it to underwrite an abortion for a minority person, you can target it that way. You can you can specify that that's how you want it spent. Okay, yeah, because there's, so de there's definitely way too many black people in Ohio, so I'm just trying to do my part. <laughs> okay, whatever. And in Idaho. I want to I want to specify that abortion to help a minority group. Would that be possible, Absolutely. like the black community, for example? Certainly. Okay. So, so the abortion could could be you know I can give money specifically for a black baby. That would that be the purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you wanted to designate that you wanted your gift to be used to help an African American woman in need, mm -hmm. um, then we would certainly uh, make sure that that gift was earmarked specifically for that purpose. Great, because I really face trouble with affirmative action, and I don't want my kids being disadvantaged, you know, against um, black kids. I just had a baby. I want to put it in his name, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know so that's, that's definitely yeah. possible. Oh, always, always. So
In 2009, Hillary Clinton received the Margaret Sanger Award in recognition of the founder of Planned Parenthood, who wrote in 1922 that immigrants, minorities, and other unfit parents were a, quote, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who should never have been born at all. In 1922, she also wrote, quote, the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Mrs. Clinton used the award ceremony as an opportunity to praise Sanger and her organization. And when I think about what she did all those years ago in Brooklyn, taking on archetypes, taking on attitudes and accusations flowing from all directions, I am really in awe of her. Now, stay tuned for episode 119 of The Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Whistleblowing, where we take a look at the 9-11 whistleblowers, including Robert Wright, Bill Bergman, Sibel Edmonds, Indira Singh, Colleen Rowley, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, J. Michael Springman, and Richard Andrew Grove. Welcome, my friends, to this very special episode 119 of The Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Whistleblowing. Few acts are as universally lauded or as manifestly laudable as the act of whistleblowing. When an insider steps forward with information that will bring a halt to malfeasance or corruption or fraud or even murder, they are almost always venerated as a hero, and rightly so. After all, it was whistleblowing that exposed the duplicity of the tobacco companies in claiming that their products were not harmful. It was inside information that brought down the Enron House of Cards before it could completely engulf the economy. Who knows how the world would have looked today if Ellsberg hadn't leaked the Pentagon Papers or Deep Throat hadn't told the world about the inner workings of Watergate. One of the most remarkable and sudden changes in our modern political landscape, the tectonic shift that has emboldened even the tamest of establishment journalists to begin questioning the anthropogenic global warming hoax was precipitated by a leak of damning emails and documents from the Climate Research Unit at the University of East Anglia, and anyone who still believes that these documents were released as the result of a hack by some outside source, or conspiracy by the Russian Mafia, or whatever the latest claim being made is, obviously hasn't looked at the incredibly well-researched and exhaustively documented analysis of the leak by the unfortunately named smalldeadanimals.com website. And, of course, I would like to remind all listeners that you can find all of the documents cited in today's episode by going to the homepage, CorbettReport.com, finding today's episode, and clicking on the documentation link. But, at any rate, suffice it to say that the ClimateGate scandal was also the result of insider information. And certainly there are no public figures today who would not publicly claim to be in favor of whistleblowing and to the exposure of vice and corruption. But good deeds are done in the sunshine, and it's the other kind with which we are concerned here. The uncomfortable question that will sit like a two-ton elephant in the room until it is asked is how many whistleblowers have tried to blow the whistle but have been stopped from doing so, whether by having their story suppressed, or because they have been fired for raising questions, or because they have been imprisoned or even killed for threatening to release the wrong goods on the wrong person on the wrong day. What happens when the very regulators and agencies that are supposed to be facilitating the act of whistleblowing are in fact working 
with the fraudsters to keep that information suppressed. This is not a trivial question. It goes to the heart of the way that corruption and fraud has spread throughout our society to the point where the banksters are now able to openly steal tens of trillions of dollars from right under the public's nose, and the public is left feeling that there's nothing they can do about it. This is a real and important question that I intend to explore in today's episode. And perhaps there is no better way to begin exploring this than to look at the defining event of our generation and one of the most whistleblown events of our time, 9-11. It's an old argument oft repeated that if 9-11 were an inside job, there would be people stepping forward to blow the whistle. Something of the size and scale and scope of 9-11 couldn't possibly take place without some insider coming forward with some information, argue the so-called debunkers. The only problem with that argument is that 9-11 whistleblowers have stepped forward to deny the tissue of lies that is the 9-11 Commission report. In spades. In fact, when it comes to whistleblowers blowing a hole through the official conspiracy of 9-11, we have an embarrassment of riches. Now, the logical place to begin breaking down the 9-11 whistleblower phenomenon is to look at the very people who were in charge of the official investigation, which is so stridently and vociferously argued for by the liars and shills of the corporate-controlled media. That is to say, the 9-11 Commission members themselves, six out of ten of whom have cast doubt upon their own investigation and its conclusions. And now to the September 11th attacks and a new book out written by the chairman of the 9-11 Commission. Two years after that commission issued its final report, its two leaders are revealing they faced frustrating obstacles from the federal government they were investigating. The book by Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton is due out later this month, but it is already causing a stir. Our justice correspondent, Pete Williams, is with us tonight from our Washington bureau. Pete, what do you have? Well, Brian, in this book, Kane and Hamilton say that one of their hardest chores turned out to be getting a straight answer from the Pentagon on the response to the first hijacking reports. In this book, they say the military gave conflicting and inaccurate versions of how quickly Air Force jets were scrambled to intercept the planes and whether those jets ever got shoot-down orders. Example, the military claimed it sent jets to pursue two of the hijacked planes when, in fact, the book says the jets were told to fly out over the Atlantic Ocean. Fog of war could explain confusion on 9-11 itself, they say, but not why the military and FAA continued to advance an account many months later that was not true. Both the Pentagon and the FAA are still investigating exactly how that happened. Do you support a criminal investigation in 9-11? Because I know yours was an exposition. It was, it was not a criminal investigation. I don't think so, but I, but I, but I don't know. I, mean, I, I, do, I do support a permanent commission to examine. Not just that, but lots of other things in this area. But if it's a permanent cover-up, then it's, uh, it's, I mean, if it's an act of war and, it's, and it's, it's hiding things, which everyone on your commission knew that the Pentagon was changing their stories, lying to you, right. and it's a cover-up of an act of war and under Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution, it's treason. So unless we get to the very bottom of it, then we're still talking tr a treasonous exposition. This is a longer conversation. I'm okay. not sure you ever, this would you ever get to the bottom of it. We have to, or we can't save our countries. 
I don't think, well, if that's the, if that's the condition upon which we're going to be saving our country, I don't Because the problem is it's a 30-year-old it's conspiracy. Yeah. It's, no, I'm talking about 9-11. That's what I'm oh, talking oh, about. Oh, you are. You mean yeah. at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I got it. Right. I got it. Right. In the 1990s, FBI Special Agent Robert Wright of the Bureau's Chicago field office spearheaded an investigation into terrorist financing codenamed Vulgar Betrayal. This investigation uncovered information connecting Yassin al-Qadi to the financing of the African embassy bombings in 1998 and resulted in the seizure of $1.4 million in assets related to terrorist financing and activities. Despite the remarkable success of this program, Wright was taken off the vulgar betrayal investigation in 1999. In 2002, Wright went public with information about how his investigation had been systematically starved for funds, hindered and obstructed by FBI management, and revealed that he believes 9-11 could have been prevented if he had been allowed to continue his investigation. Knowing what I know, and again, this was written 91 days before the attack, Knowing what I know, I can confidently say that until the investigative responsibilities for terrorism are removed from the FBI, I will not feel safe. The FBI has proven for the past decade it cannot identify and prevent acts of terrorism against the United States and its citizens at home and abroad. Even worse, there is virtually no effort on the part of the FBI's International Terrorism Unit to neutralize known and suspected terrorists residing within the United States. Unfortunately, more terrorist attacks against American interests coupled with the loss of American lives will have to occur before those in power give this matter the urgent attention it deserves. Realizing more American lives are going to be needlessly lost, no one should expect me to consciously sit idly by and pretend to forget the things I know. By sharing what I know, the terrorism problems plaguing America may be corrected. Knowing what I know, I truly believe I would be derelict in my duty as an American if I did not do my best to bring the FBI's dereliction of duty to the attention of others. Therefore, in an effort to prevent more deadly terrorist attacks against American interests at home and abroad, I have made it my mission, with the legal assistance of Attorney David Shippers, to legally expose the problems of the FBI to the President of the United States, to the United States Congress, and to the American people. The main objective of the um, the manuscript, uh, there's going to be people who are going to say that um, it, this is for profit, and that, that's just not the case. Um, it was to be made available to Congress, so changes could be made. And the manuscript outlines in very specific detail uh, what I believe allowed September 11th to happen. Um, Yes, and it, it was written before September 11th, except for the last three pages. So, um, And I don't know if Congress is aware of it, if the Bureau has made Congress aware of it or not. That's part of the purpose of today's uh, press conference, so that they are well aware of it. I believe they need to review this. Whoever's in uh, the investigative arm does need to review this document, in my opinion. Um, to the families and victims. of September 11th. On behalf of uh, John Vincent, Barry Carmody, and myself, we're sorry. 
the reference to John Vincent and Barry Carmody are references to other uh, FBI agents who want to come forward to tell the truth. In the wake of 9-11, Sibel Edmonds learned that the FBI counterterrorism unit had been caught flat-footed because it did not have enough Middle Eastern language experts to provide translations of communication intercepts that may have contained information pertaining to the attacks. Fluent in Turkish and Azerbaijani and conversational in Farsi, she offered her services to the FBI who hired her as a translator on the 15th of September 2001. She soon discovered gross negligence and criminal conspiracy in the FBI and State Department, including deliberately mistranslated documents in the Bureau's possession before 9-11 that contained information about the attacks, nuclear spies being facilitated by top government officials and foreign operatives who were taken in for questioning after 9-11 being released because they were connected to those spy rings. An internal government report determined that none of Edmonds' allegations can be refuted. In 2009, Edmonds revealed that Osama bin Laden had been working for U.S. intelligence right up to the day of 9-11. I have information about things that our government has lied to, the, to our people, to us. Uh, uh, not to me, because I know. For example... To say that, all right, since the fall of the Soviet Union, we ceased all our uh, relationship, intimate relationship with bin Laden and, and Taliban, and, and those things can be proven uh, as lies very easily based on the information they classified in my case, because we did carry very intimate relationship with these people, uh, and, and it involved Central Asia, and all the way up to September 11, I know you're going to say, oh my God, there were this, uh, you know, we went there and we bombed the medical factory in 1990s during uh, Clinton, we declared the most wanted, and what I'm telling you is, with those groups, we had operations in Central Asia, and that relationship, using them as we did during the Afghan uh, and Soviet conflict, we used them all the way until September 11th. When the so-called 20th hijacker, Zacharias Musawi, was arrested on August 15th of 2001, agents in the Minneapolis FBI field office requested a criminal warrant to search his belongings, believing him to be part of a larger criminal conspiracy that was planning an imminent attack. In fact, his laptop did contain information that would have led to the 9-11 plot, but the agents were denied a criminal warrant by the chief of the radical fundamentalist unit, Dave Frasca. From that point, the RFU throws up numerous roadblocks to the agents who are attempting to investigate Musawi's case, including making the FBI representative in Paris go through every telephone directory in France to see how many Zacharias Musawis live there when the French authorities confirm that Zacharias Musawi is connected to the Chechen rebels stopping the Minneapolis field office from informing the Justice Department's criminal division about the Musawi case, deliberately stopping agents from finding out about the so-called Phoenix Memo warning about known terrorists engaging in flight training throughout the U.S., and even withholding from the Justice Department the fact that Musawi had said he wanted to go on jihad, explaining that comment away as saying that that does not necessarily mean holy war. 
Incredibly enough, the heads of the radical fundamentalist unit even oppose a search warrant for Musawi's possessions after 9-11. Rowley would go on to say in 2002, quote, Why would an FBI agent deliberately sabotage a case? The superiors acted so strangely that some agents in the Minneapolis office openly joked that these higher-ups had to be spies or moles working for Osama bin Laden. So quickly, what happens? Your office contacts headquarters. You want essentially uh, authority to get warrants. Right. The agents, and you don't get it. The agents, and this is actually pretty well spelled out in the 9-11 Commission report, but they send in a multi-paged draft declaration, chock full of facts, as you would in any affidavit, of why uh, they needed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court to give authorization to, to con conduct a further search. And uh, when it goes into headquarters, it gets stalled. And it gets, this is, of course, what I wrote the memo about, but it gets stalled uh, for, oh, you, you, he might be any Zacharias Musawi. You know, we need to check the phone books to make sure it's the only one. I mean, there's all these ridiculous uh, excuses given. Finally, they say that the legal unit in the FBI read it and said there's not enough probable cause. Okay, it turns out the um, legal unit had not actually read it. So there's, you don't know these things though when it's happening. And the agents, of course, are very frustrated and they call and they call. <clears throat> when the agent testifies in Musawi's trial, there were 70 emails uh, to and from headquarters in this short two-week span. And one of the telephone calls uh, in August, um, I'm not sure of the exact date, 23rd, 24th, 28th maybe, one of the telephone calls, the acting supervisor says on the phone with the headquarters supervisor, in order to try to alert him, he says, don't you know this is a guy who could fly into the World Trade Center, quote unquote. And he wrote it down in his notes as he was talking to the headquarters supervisor. In late 1999, a directive from the Joint Chiefs of Staff set up a U.S. Special Operations Command Task Force codenamed Able Danger, which was to use an information operations campaign plan against transnational threats, including, specifically, Al-Qaeda. According to one of the members of that task force, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, the Able Danger team had identified two of the three cells responsible for the 9-11 attacks, including the alleged lead hijacker Mohammed Atta, a year before the attacks took place. It was prevented from passing this information along to the FBI by the Defense Intelligence Agency. My initial disclosure came to directly to Dr. Philip Zelikow, who was the then chair of the 9-11 Commission. And uh, what I just told you and your audience is what I told him. But in, a, in about an hour's worth of briefing, where I lay out all the bones of the operation, I, I lay out everything from uh, who was involved, what was the focus. I talked about some clandestine operations which were related to it, which we were using to support the, 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 the targeting effort. And, my, and, and, of course, one of the things which drew total silence and shock when I brought it up was the fact that we discovered three of the uh, the 9-11 hijacker cells. We, we discovered three of the four cells of the 9-11 attacks. And it was, you know, total shock and dismay by the people in the room to include Dr. Zelikow. Uh, and then during that initial disclosure, uh, he pulls me aside at the end of that meeting and at Bagram, this happened in October of 03, and uh, gives me his card and says, what you said today, and I'm going to quote as, as, as accurately as I remember, and I think this is, is directed from my testimony, what you said today is very important. We need to continue this dialogue. I need you to contact me upon your return to the United States. 
uh, and, and that at which time I explained to him, well, you know, I'm going to be, I'm actually undercover here, so I'm going to have to give you, you know, my, my real name is something else. I will, you know, contact your staff when I get back. And it was during that time, between October and, and February, and in January, frankly, something happened. And, and, and to me, there's still a mystery of what exactly happened. But sure enough, I followed up, contacted his staff, and um, all of a sudden, they don't want to talk to me. Even though what I said there, that Bodrum, uh, they were very, very shocked, very interested. And I was told after talking to the, his staff twice, and I'll get our quote as, as accurate as I remember it, uh, we don't need you to come in. We, we have all the information on able danger that we need, unquote. In August 2001, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors issued a non-routine supervisory letter warning Fed banks to be vigilant in monitoring suspicious activity reports. At the same time, the United States was experiencing its largest June to August spike in M1 money supply since 1947. More than $5 billion was added to currency in circulation. Piecing this information together two years later at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, economist Bill Bergman wondered if the sudden infusion of currency might have been an indicator of foreknowledge of the 9-11 attacks, as those with assets in danger of being frozen in the wake of such an attack would naturally seek to liquidate their holdings. When Bergman wrote to the Board of Governors to ask for clarification as to why they had issued their supervisory letter, he was told that he had committed an egregious breach of protocol in calling the board staff and asking the question. In, in August 2001, at the time that I was looking at the data, August 2001 was the third fastest growing month in currency in circulation, which is a component of the M1 money supply. Uh, the, the deposits are a much bigger component, but the currency in circulation, currency circulating outside of banks is another component, and August had the third biggest increase in percentage terms since World War II, which uh, there was a benign possible explanation. There was a banking crisis in Argentina that was flowering at the time, and but there are other possible explanations that we haven't seen evidence that there's been a good investigation of yet. Indira Singh was a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan at the beginning of the decade, and she was tasked with implementing the next generation of risk management software and working for one of the largest financial institutions in the world. Singh wanted to choose a reputable third-party software vendor with a proven track record. She solicited a presentation from P-Tech, an enterprise architecture software firm whose clients included the most sensitive agencies in the U.S. government, including the United States Armed Forces, NATO, the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, Customs, the FAA, the IRS, the Secret Service, and the White House. When performing due diligence on P-Tech, Singh discovered the company had been founded in part with funds from globally specially designated terrorist Yasin al-Qadi, the same man Robert Wright had been investigating before he was taken off the vulgar betrayal case, and found numerous connections between P-TECH officers and suspected terrorist organizations. P-TECH had even been conducting tests on the interoperability of FAA and NORAD computer systems on the morning of 9-11. Yeah. For everyone, you know, we were talking about that earlier, about the uh, put options. Now, CIA has an automatic safeguard, the premise, where they check any unusual trading. So it automatically goes into the F CIA file. So the P-TECH could have possibly been involved with the premise, and that's why we don't get any information from that? Or 
PTEC was with MITRE in the, I say, in the basement of the FAA for two years prior to 9-11. Their specific job was to look at interoperability issues the FAA had with NORAD and the Air Force in the case of an emergency. If anyone was in a position to know that the FAA, there was a window of opportunity or to insert software or to change anything, it would have been PTEC along with MITRE. And that ties right back to Michael Rupert's information. Now, um, tell me what the exact relationship is um, between your information on PTEC and Rupert's, Mike Rupert's ability to trace um, actions directly to uh, the Secret Service and the Vice President's office. The functionality, if I that correctly. the functionality that Michael um, is claiming that Dick Cheney utilized is the exact same functionality I was looking to utilize PTEC for in the bank. I was looking to set up a shadow surveillance system on everything going on, every transaction, and the ability to backdoor, um, look at information unobtrusively, and to backdoor um, intelligent agents out there to do things uh, that other people would not be aware of. To stop, I mean, in risk, the whole shift is from bad things going on and finding it after the fact to preventing it from happening. So we were looking for patterns and have an intervention in there. So we were looking for interventive software, something that would stop. What Michael Rupert is referring to is exactly the same kind of functionality, surveillance and intervention. In 2000, Richard Andrew Grove took a job for a software development entity called Silverstream Software. He worked in sales and by October had landed the company the largest client in its history, Marsh and McLennan. Silverstream had built internet transactional and trading platforms for Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, Bankers Trust, Alex Brown, Morgan Stanley, and others, and Richard Grove was responsible for those accounts at one time or another. It was in October of 2000, however, that Richard Grove was to stumble on some fiscal anomalies with the Marsh account, which were to lead him into the tangled web of 9-11, including a very personal experience with that horrible event. I first noticed fiscal anomalies with respect to the Marsh.com project when I was in a meeting on the 98th floor in October of 2000 with a gentleman named Gary Lasko. Gary was Marsh's North American Chief Information Officer, and that particular afternoon a colleague and I helped him identify about $10 million in suspicious purchase orders after I had recognized that certain vendors were deceiving Marsh and specifically appeared to be selling Marsh large quantities of hardware that were not necessary, as this was later confirmed by Gary. In the spring of 2001, I was negotiating a $5 million renewal contract with Gary to complete Marsh's list of requirements for the Marsh.com project. Simultaneous to my efforts to close this deal, I was concerned that Silverstream was overbilling Marsh to the tune of about $7 million or more. I brought my concerns up to executives inside of Silverstream, and I was urged to keep quiet and mind my own business. I went to an executive inside of Marsh, and he advised me to do likewise. But then, I mentioned it to a few executives at Marsh who I could trust, like Gary Lasko and Catherine Lee, Ken Rice, Richard Bruhart, and John Oltshoffer. 
people who became likewise concerned that something untoward was going on. The concerned colleagues I just mentioned were murdered on September 11th. And the executives who expressed dismay at my concerns are alive and free today because of it. I feel it is no coincidence as the Marsh executive who urged me to drop my line of inquiry made sure that his personnel, who I just mentioned, were in the office bright and early for a global conference call before the staff meeting upon which I was to intrude. A conference call which I was informed this executive in question conducted but attended from the safety of his Upper West Side apartment. Although in getting ahead of myself again, I will mention that this executive in question, whose name I will not disclose here, is intimately affiliated with the Council on Foreign Relations. A 20-year veteran of the State Department's Foreign Service, J. Michael Springman served 18 months as visa station chief at the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in 1988-89. During that time, he repeatedly rejected visa applications for unqualified individuals, only to have his decisions overturned by ranking personnel in the consulate and the visas granted after all. When he returned to Washington, he discovered that the Jeddah consulate was being used as a place for funneling Afghan Mujahideen into the U.S. for training facilitated by the CIA on behalf of their asset, Osama bin Laden. Uh, I found out from the journalist Joe Trento, T-R-E-N-T-O, plus a couple of other uh, good contacts, that what was really going on was a visas for terrorist program. People were being recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency uh, with the help of Osama bin Laden, its asset, to go and fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. And they were brought to the United States for training, rewards, uh, education, whatever. And... I said, ah, now I know why they raised such hell with me and my predecessor, who also complained, but she still has a job. Uh, so I began to ask questions. I began to write letters. I began to, uh, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request and an appeal and then a court case and absolutely was stonewalled every step of the way. Wright, Bergman, Edmonds, Singh, Rowley, Schaefer, Springman, Grove, the list goes on and on and on. And trust me, there are others out there with information that directly contradicts the official story that we have been force-fed about the events of 9-11 by the corporate-controlled media acting in concert with their puppet masters in the government and, more importantly, the shadow government, which has been puppeteering these events for many, many years. But suffice it to say, once you begin your own research into the subject, you will find other whistleblowers, and many of them there are, to be sure. But today I'd like to concentrate specifically on the stories of the latter two whistleblowers, that is to say J. Michael Springman and Richard Andrew Grove, both of whom I have had the honor of talking to in conversations over the course of the past month. Now obviously their stories are Related very specifically to 9-11, J. Michael Springman, because, of course, he worked at the very consulate from which 11 of the 19 alleged 9-11 hijackers were to receive their visas to enter the United States, and Richard Grove, because he was on his way to the meeting in the 98th floor of the World Trade Center when that 98th floor exploded, killing all of the people in the meeting that he was scheduled to attend, investigating the fiscal anomalies at Marsh and McLennan. 
but their personal stories extend and point outwards towards events beyond 9-11, because of course, as we have gone over time and time again in this podcast, 9-11 is merely one day in a long string of events that point both backwards and forwards in time and reveal a coordinated criminal group using intelligence agencies, corporate boardrooms, and other levers of power over society towards the lining of their own pockets and the emptying of yours and mine. In Springman's case, the activities he observed at the Jeddah Consulate are indicative of the ways in which intelligence agencies have their fingerprints all over the visa selection and approval process, whereby known terrorists are routinely allowed to travel into and out of the United States freely when and if it suits the purposes of the people who want false flag terrorist events in order to cause a problem, reaction, solution, Hegelian dialectic. Another clear example of that came from the recent admission by the State Department that although they had tried to revoke the so-called underwear bombers visa to enter the United States, that attempt was overruled by U.S. intelligence agencies, which didn't want to jeopardize their investigation into terrorists like Abdul Muttalab. The details of Richard Grove's case connect forward in time with the institution of the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations that were designed to prevent the very types of fiscal anomaly shenanigans which he had been encountering in his time with Silverstream and further in his time with Legato. But as he was to discover, and as he has just outlined in full in a brand new feature-length documentary called 2020 Hindsight, censorship on the front line, the very software that was brought in to bring companies into compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations was in fact itself able to help them perpetuate fraud and to hide anomalous transactions from the investigative authorities that were supposedly there to do their job, but which were in fact, to a large part, involved in the scam. Let's start breaking down these stories, and we'll start with that of J. Michael Springman, who I did have the chance to interview earlier this month. And of course, I would recommend that listeners go and listen to that interview in its entirety from the homepage, CorbettReport.com. Right now, let's listen to an excerpt from that interview where Mr. Springman talks about the importance of the information he discovered while working at the Jeddah Consulate. Very interesting. Well, so just to make this explicit, this experience mm -hmm. is particularly significant because uh, just over a decade later, it would be that very office that would rubber stamp visas for no less than 11 of the 9-11 hijackers. And uh, it, several of them uh, were issued visas under a new program called Visa Express that was instituted just months before the events of 9-11. Is that correct? Exactly. Uh, the uh, What had been the normal case when I was in Jeddah was that everybody other than Saudis had to appear personally for an interview. I mean, if it was a, a, a father and he uh, wanted visas for himself and his wife and two kids, uh, only one of the family had to show up. Uh, and in some instances, when I had questions about the Saudis, I demanded that the Saudi turn up in front of me and, and be personally interviewed. But in the case of the Visa Express program, they decided that they would work through travel agents and let the agents... Uh, collect the paperwork and the documents and simply carry them over to the consulate or uh, the embassy and uh, uh, let them be processed by the consular section. 
well, I had been told by Salvino Castillo, who had been a drug enforcement officer, uh, that this was common practice for the CIA in Central America. They would put their own people in uh, with a pile of uh, passports and applications for visas uh, and send them all over to the uh, uh, the various consular officials to, to deal with, and they would uh, never be given any uh, clear indication of what was going on. Uh, and in my case, I was dumb enough at the time that if they had told me what they were doing, uh, then... Um, I would have been dumb enough to, to rubber stamp these things. But I, I took my job seriously, and since my name was on the visa plate, I would be held accountable for violating the law, which uh, the penalties are, are fairly substantial with uh, uh, something like five years in jail and a $25,000 fine. And if it involves uh, terrorism and things like this, it, it goes to 10 years in jail and a $250,000 fine. So just to be sure, did, did you have any contacts remaining in the Jeddah consulate during the uh, run-up to 9-11, or did you ever receive any information about the approval of the visas for those alleged hijackers? Uh, I never got any information directly, but I did find out that uh, I had kept a file on questionable visa issuances uh, when the Consul General Frayers would demand that I, I give them a visa uh, to an applicant I had just refused, or else I would be unemployed. Uh, I kept a copy of the original denial, and then I wrote in red on the form, uh, issued per order of uh, Consul General Frayers. And I kept a file with this. I kept photocopies of it and mentioned this to one of the uh, inspectors who had come out who wanted to know what was going on, and he apparently knew more about what was going on than I did. And he said, we'll protect you. We want you to confirm everything uh, I've just told you, and I you know, very foolishly did. Uh, and then I, uh, later on, I was out of a job. And then, of course, when I asked about the file, since journalists were asking me about the records I had kept, I learned that the file had been destroyed, but nobody could tell me who did it. Very interesting. Well, the, this story of yours has, of course, become quite well known because of its explosive nature and, and what you've revealed about intelligence agencies manipulating the visa process. And we continue to see those manipulations right through to the present day with recent reports that uh, U.S. intelligence blocked attempts to revoke Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalab's visa. And yeah, when, mm -hmm. well, when these pieces are put together, it, it begins to paint a, pec a picture of direct government complicity in, in the movement of peoples who are already known to be involved in terrorist activities. So obviously this type of information is extremely politically sensitive, to say the least. So, so what sort of harassment or intimidation were you subjected to when you, when you first attempted to look into this unusual activity? Well, I, basically, I was told to shut up and then uh, do my job. And I said, well, my job is to question these people. And if, I don't, if I'm not satisfied, because the law says they are an intending immigrant unless and until they can prove otherwise, and the burden of proof is on the visa applicant, uh, I, I said that, uh, you know, they're not going to get the visa. And then it was do it or else. Uh, then they went after a while to the head of the consular section, Justice Stevens, uh, and he simply uh, issued the visas. Uh, at one point, when I would issue a visa, I had to take the uh, uh, the application of the passport over to the uh, CIA base offices, and they would check on the visa applicant. And I could never quite figure this out, and was told by uh, a couple of more experienced consular officers that uh, this was done depending on how aggressive the CIA base chief was, and they were probably looking for people that they could work with and control and, and get them to work for their on their behalf as, as agents. 
Meanwhile, in the new documentary 2020 Hindsight, Censorship on the Frontline, Richard Andrew Grove details how the back door that he found in the software that he was selling enabled not only the types of strange financial transactions we saw in the run-up to 9-11, but also the very types of transactions which made the well-nigh mind-boggling amount of fraud going on on Wall Street over the past several years possible. When did these events take place, and what was your experience which led you to believe that there was a clear and present danger to the economy? This happened in the summer of 2003 and extended till January of 2004 when I was terminated, but I first became aware in July of 2003, I was in a meeting with one of my clients, which was Tyco International, which was one of these companies that was exposed into this accounting fraud. And at the time that I was at my client at, at Tyco, they were under investigation and under mandate by the FBI and the SEC not to delete any data. And their problem was data was building up all over the place, especially in their email. So I went in there with this Sarbanes-Oxley product to say, what happened happened because you didn't have our product. And now that you're under these mandates, these are good. We can help you clean this all up. In fact, our product can help you save disk space. And it was at that point that the person with whom we were meeting, Valley Baudasano, who is the chief general counsel of Tyco International and her team, Valley says to myself and my technical team that she's not interested in keeping this data. She wants to know how to delete this data. And she wants to know how to delete this data beyond the scrutiny of FBI and SEC. I know nothing about this, so I'm thinking this is really out of context, to which point one of the technical guys on my team says, hey, I know what you're talking about that, and we can talk about that offline or whatever, and they let me finish my presentation because I had only worked there a couple weeks, but that stuck in my head. So a few weeks later, in August of 2003, I was at a client called the NASD, which has later changed its name, so it's now called the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the NASD was looking at our product and, and they wanted to use it internally and one of the guys across the table says to me, hey, wait a minute, this product has a back door because right here where you're supposed to take this information and put it on the write once, read many storage, which is a type of permanent storage, he said there's this jar file and you can delete the jar file and then there's no evidence of that transaction whatsoever. So he was showing me across the table that there's a loophole, there's a back door in the software that allows nefarious transactions to go on and subsequently they didn't buy the software they're like this is bullshit this isn't worth the money this is this is not what it's supposed to be and you should do something about that now i had management from my side in the meeting and so i went to my managers afterwards and i'm like what's this all about and why wh what's going on with this and i was told not to talk about it so given the absolutely incredible stories of springman and grove and the many many other 9-11 whistleblowers and given the avowed public stance of all known politicians and pundits that whistleblowing is always and inevitably a great and courageous act that needs to be commended whenever it is found, it should therefore go without saying that all of these whistleblowers were treated with the utmost respect by the various agencies tasked with investigating their claims. Right? As a past Justice Department alumni, I can assure you that this was cleared by the director of the FBI. Dear Mr. Shippers, this is in response to your correspondence to Special Agent in Charge Thomas J. Nair, dated May 22, 2002, concerning the intent of your client, Special Agent Robert G. Wright, to comment publicly about his duties and responsibilities. I would like to thank you for providing the FBI with advance notice of your client's intentions so we can provide appropriate guidance concerning his rights and obligations. 
Your letter indicates that you and Special Agent Wright believe that the value of his speech outweighs the interest of the FBI and is therefore protected under the First Amendment. The FBI's pre-publication review process recognizes that employees have First Amendment rights and attempts to appropriately balance those rights with the sensitivity of information in FBI files or that an employee may acquire by virtue of being employed by the FBI. An authorized disclosure of this type of information could impair national security, place human life in jeopardy, deny subjects of FBI investigations due process, or otherwise prevent the FBI from effectively discharging its responsibilities. In effect, what they're writing here is, is that what Special Agent Raleigh of Minnesota revealed would have put lives in jeopardy and jeopardized national security. Yet, the director of the FBI is praising her for coming forward, but writing a letter to Special Agent Wright effectively threatening him. And listen to, to hear these threats as I read this letter. As the FBI's Manual of Administrative and Operational Procedures makes clear, an employee is obligated not to disclose any information within the scope of his employment agreement without written permission to do so. Neither the employee nor his lawyer, therefore, they're talking to us at Judicial Watch and Dave Shippers of Shippers and Bailey, may decide when information otherwise prohibited from disclosure may be publicly disseminated. And what occurred after you asked that question? About a week later, my assignment was terminated. I was told I committed an egregious breach of protocol, calling the board and asking the question. And a month later, my position in the bank was eliminated. Back in this country, a newly disclosed letter confirms charges by a former FBI interpreter that she was, in fact, fired, at least in part, because she blew the whistle on totally incompetent workers at the FBI. CBS's Jim Stewart has been digging into this. When the FBI fired interpreter Sabelle Edmonds more than two years ago after only a few months on the job, it had no idea the can of worms it was opening up, and today it got yet another taste. In a letter released on Capitol Hill, FBI Director Robert Mueller acknowledged that a recently concluded Internal Justice Department investigation found a contributing factor in Edmonds' firing was the fact that she had accused the Bureau of ineptitude. Ineptitude Edmonds insisted today that still exists. The problems were systemic problems that existed within the FBI's translation units that involved security breaches and also incompetence. These were the problems I reported. Turning now to the issue of national security, my guest tonight has created a firestorm in Washington over what he says is a cover-up of vital pre-9-11 intelligence. It is the highly classified Able Danger program, and it identified Mohammed Atta and three other 9-11 terrorists as members of an al-Qaeda cell in Brooklyn, New York, more than a year before the attacks. Congressman Kurt Weldon says the man who blew the whistle on this intelligence, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaffer, is now the subject of a smear campaign by the Defense Intelligence Agency. Congressman Weldon blasted the DIA in a fiery speech on the House floor just last night. This is an attempt to prevent the American people from knowing the facts about how we could have prevented 9-11, and people are covering it up today. And they're ruining the career of a military officer to do it. And we can't let it stand. I don't care whether you're Democrat or Republican. You can't let a lieutenant colonel's career be ruined because of some bureaucrat in the Defense Intelligence Agency. If we let that happen, then no one that wears the uniform will ever feel protected. Unfortunately, J. Michael Springman's story was no different.
That's right. So what, what time frame are we talking about with your initial Freedom of Information requests? Uh, I filed that once I was out of the Foreign Service about uh, 1991, 1992. So that would be about two or three years after your time in Jeddah. Right. And interestingly enough, when um, the uh, September 11th people started crashing airplanes into buildings, Joe Trento, the journalist, suggested I contact the FBI again. I tried to reach them earlier, and it was blown off. And they said, you know, call them and tell them uh, the basis of your story. And I did. I went to uh, headquarters, and they passed me through three or four offices, and they sent me to... uh, their Washington field office, and I talked to various people there, and uh, it was basically, well, uh, we'll get back to you. And I'm still waiting, and probably if they'd listen to me, I'd be in Guantanamo Bay or someplace. Mm-hmm. So so in that pre-9-11 period, um, was there ever any consideration on your part that there would be possible retribution for going public with this information? Uh, initially, I didn't think so, but then I was kind of stupid, uh, as I've since found out that people who blow the whistle, who complain about the, the status quo, and especially people who question national security, whatever that might be, uh, they seem to have problems keeping jobs, getting jobs, or um, uh, they're, kind of, they're kind of marginalized. And this is this is apparently very typical. And uh, people who who start out to be whistleblowers are warned uh, sometimes that if, you know you you sure you want to do this? How much money do you have saved? Uh, if you're unemployed and can't get another job, what are you going to do? And how can you hire an attorney to defend your rights since the law is a business as much as it is a profession? Nor was Richard Andrew Grove's story any different. Now, from reading your court transcripts, it was evident that not only did you do your due diligence, but that you escalated your concerns to the executives at Legato and EMC, as well as alerting the SEC. Could you elaborate? I had asked my management and hadn't gotten direct answers. I raised and escalated my level of concern through management in my company. And at that time, it, the EMC Legato merger had finished. So EMC was now the corporation in charge and they weren't interested. So I went to the SEC. I called the attorney who was involved with the SEC's investigation of Northrop Grumman. And I said, look, I see the situation that you guys are investigating and arresting these people on. It seems similar to a situation that I have going on here. These are my clients. There are side letters with other clients that are going on that existed before I even got here. I haven't worked here long. I'm trying to understand the lay of the land. He indicated to me that if I shared any further information with the SEC, that I could be held liable and I could be sued and possibly worse. And it was not a a warm and welcoming, hey, you're a whistleblower. Come share this information with us. He was more telling me, if you proceed with this, it, we're going to make it hard on you because we don't want this information out there. Again, they just like they don't teach the accountants and the lawyers about fraud, they didn't teach me getting my business degree about how to recognize fraud in these companies and what to do and what, what your rights are and what protections there are and what resources there are. And they certainly don't tell you that if you raise this question, you're going to give up a multi-million dollar career because you asked this question and persisted in finding out the answer. 
And the protections you think you'll use to get that answer are actually, you know, just there to get you to give that information so they can knit it up and tie up all the loose ends. The very person that I provided the information to in the form of blowing the whistle and, and requesting this specific protections engaged and, and provided by Sarbanes-Oxley was the general counsel of a multi-billion dollar corporation that had just bought my company and he showed vehemently that he was not interested in receiving this information because he ordered my termination instead of protecting me as the law mandates. And when did you make this call to the SEC? I made the call to the SEC on October 24th, 2003, which was my 30th birthday. Well, as shocking as some of those responses will be to some of the listeners out there, and certainly as they appeared to have been to some of the people actually blowing the whistle, they certainly can't be all that surprising to longtime listeners of this podcast who know that there are definitely people on the insides of these organizations that are absolutely part of the scam and want this information to be suppressed. But that still leaves the question, well, where does one go when the regulators and the watchers themselves need to be policed? Is there anywhere to turn? And in a bygone era, perhaps the answer would have been the fourth estate, that pillar of society which keeps our democracy functioning by keeping us informed and speaking truth to power. In some cases, it even seems to have some effect. Colleen Rowley, for instance, was able to get her story out into the media before it went through the bureaucratic channels of the FBI, and as a result, she ended up as one of the Time Persons of the Year in 2002, which was at least a prominent enough spot that the FBI couldn't repress her story the way it certainly did to Robert Wrights. But perhaps it will come as no surprise to longtime listeners of this podcast that ultimately the fourth estate is not all it's cracked up to be. Richard Andrew Grove attempted to get his information out through a well-known and well-respected mainstream journalist. This was his result. Who specifically did you approach at PBS Frontline to investigate your claims and publish your evidence? The reporter we went to at Frontline was named Lowell Bergman. What made you trust in Frontline and specifically in Lowell Bergman? A couple weeks before I contacted Lowell Bergman, I had screened a, a film with Russell Crowe, and Lowell Bergman was portrayed in the film by Al Pacino. It was called The Insider, and it's about this whistleblower named John Wygand, and he worked for a cigarette company named Brown and Williamson. He was in a similar situation to what I found myself in. He faxed Lowell Bergman in the movie, so I thought, why not look up you know, this guy's fax number, send him a fax. Uh, we corresponded with Bergman. He said, yes, send me all of your evidence. Send a big box of evidence out there with voice recordings and legal documents and all this evidence that I'd collected through... What I'd been through that far in my court case and he had two people working on the investigation of checking out these documents and checking out my claims and more importantly the connections that my claims were pointing to between the White House and the founder of the company that I was working at and the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations and the SEC's role in these events and after a year and a half, I was told that he couldn't do anything for me, that one of the editors had been fired, that the other editor's job at the San Francisco Chronicle had his career threatened and decided he wanted to keep his career. And so after a year and a half of believing that this information was going to make it to the American people vis-a-vis -vis Frontline, I had to come to the realization that there are some entities out there, in fact, many entities, that benefit specifically from you not getting this information. What was the gist of what you sought Bergman to investigate? 
I wasn't so much interested in Frontline doing a story on me. What I found to be interesting was after I had identified that there was a backdoor in the product that I was selling, and the product I was selling was Sarbanes-Oxley regulation software that was being used by financial services company across all, all over the world, but specifically across America. And once I understood that the purpose of Sarbanes-Oxley regulations was to keep these companies from deleting files and that the backdoor in the software allowed these companies to delete files, and more importantly, the fact that someone outside of the company that's not even associated with the company but has access to that software could launder money or steal money or just delete money from corporations and switch financial records all around without anyone, any investigator, any auditor being able to audit that. Those things I thought were interesting, but when the SEC, after I told them, bought the software with the back door in it and was started to use it for itself, then I knew that the SEC was not there to regulate like I thought it was. They were also, hey, we can find a benefit from this back door in the software. We can delete files now. Now we're above the law. And so essentially the people who were perpetrating the scam also had control or at least controlling influence over the supposed investigatory organizations and agencies. And that's what I thought the American people needed to find out through Lowell Bergman because the traditional press, the, the newspapers we went to, wanted nothing to do with this because it conflicted with their advertisers. So I was hoping that since Bergman did such a good job and was featured in this Hollywood film and it helped this other whistleblower, that you know it would be appropriate for him to at least investigate the story and if there was something to it. But he didn't come back and say, there's nothing to your story. He said, there's so much to your story that we can't publish it. So then really, what are the answers? Are we left in this situation where we're completely helpless because those who are designed and in the place to help us are unwilling or unable to do so? Are we just supposed to give up and assume that this information will never reach the masses? Well, of course not. And one of the ways that we can help to fight back is to help to institute stronger legislation for protecting whistleblowers who do come forward so that their stories will not be suppressed. In my recent conversation with J. Michael Springman, I had the chance to ask him about protection for whistleblowers under U.S. law. So that raises the question, to what extent does American jurisprudence protect the act of whistleblowing? And is there the need for greater protections to ensure that uh, these heroic acts can be encouraged? Well, there, one, there is a greater need. And two, uh, there is some protection, but it's been severely circumscribed. Uh, the, the law, the Whistleblower Protection Act of 1989... Uh, and the citation is five, Title V United States Code, Section 1213, um, protects only federal whistleblowers, um, and there are some similar laws amongst the various states. I don't know how many, but they, they do exist. Uh, but it's, it's pretty circumscribed. You have to um, uh, disclose information uh, that the person reasonably believes evidence of violation of the law, rule, or regulation, uh, gross mismanagement, waste of funds, abuse of authority, and so forth. Um, but you have to make the statement that, yes, I'm doing it on this basis, I am raising it on this basis, and it is not part of my job, uh, because there was one case where the... Uh, uh, Supreme Court ruled that government employees do not have protection from retaliation by their employers under the First Amendment uh, when they speak pursuant to their official job duties. So, you know, it's basics. Uh, 
if everything falls into place, you might get somewhere. But by and large, you have to say it is a specific uh, uh, statement I'm making under the Whistleblower Protection Act. I am making it to this person and that person and that agency that should take care of this. And not everybody does this. Not everybody is smart enough to do this. Not everybody is advised to do this. And if you're lucky, you can appeal to the Office of the Special Counsel in the federal government, uh, which unfortunately has a reputation for protecting the government more than the whistleblower. And they've tried to strengthen the act, uh, you know, going a bit more than just having the Office of Special Counsel doing an investigation and, and uh, advising the agency to clean up its act and to not retaliate. But it, it, it's all on the, the shoulders of the, uh, the whistleblower who then has to... Uh, essentially do the investigation for the Office of Special Counsel. And if he's lucky, he might be able to take it to the Merit Systems Protection Board. But this doesn't apply to people in the FBI or the Central Intelligence Agency or in, in the State Department, for that matter, as far as I know. So they tried to strengthen this in 2007 and 2009, but it, it, it's gotten nowhere. Um, that was one of the things that still Sibel Edmonds and the National Security Whistleblowers Coalition wanted was to strengthen the, the act and to extend it to the um, people involved in, in national security affairs. And it was fought tooth and nail by Tom Harris, who was a Virginia congressman on the uh, U.S. House of Representatives um, uh, Government Operations Committee. And uh, he just simply didn't want to hear about it. And the meetings that we had had with various other congressmen, uh, they let us make a pitch, and they let the, the members of the, make a pitch, but nothing ever came of it. Unfortunately, here too, things are not unfolding to the advantage of the whistleblowers. This comes from the National Whistleblowers Center, an organization in the United States campaigning for whistleblower awareness and greater protection under the law. They recently released an action alert under the headline, Poison Pills in Senate Whistleblower Bill May Become Law. Your senator can prevent this from happening. Quote, Dear Action Alert members, for months we've been telling you about the dangerous provisions included in the Senate version of the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act, S-372. We have now learned that S-372 is being hotlined, a process by which legislation can be passed through unanimous consent without any debate or a roll call vote. A Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Bill should improve protections for whistleblowers, not destroy protections that have been in place for years. The impact of these provisions on national security whistleblowing will be devastating. Your intervention on this issue is crucial. Although many provisions of the bill enhance whistleblower protections, there are many poison pills that must be corrected, including these. S-372 repeals the FBI whistleblower protection law. Originally passed in 1978, improved in 1989, and given strong teeth by President Clinton in 1997, the law has been instrumental in permitting FBI agents to expose abuses ranging from civil rights violations, agent misconduct, and threats to our national security. Agency heads of the Justice Department, Commerce Department, and Security Agencies, Defense Department, etc., covering over half the federal workforce, are given the power to unilaterally fire a whistleblower with no administrative or judicial review. National security whistleblowers are denied the right to have their retaliation cases reviewed by independent agencies, such as the Office of Special Counsel or the Inspector General, and they are denied the right to court access. 
Instead, they, the very agency that fired the whistleblower is given exclusive power to conduct the fact-finding investigation into whether that agency broke the law. A new procedural roadblock impacting every federal employee was inserted into this 105-page bill. This provision gives all federal agencies the power to request the dismissal of a whistleblower case without giving the employee an opportunity to have a hearing and will prevent most employees from obtaining a jury trial. Hotlining requires unanimous consent, which gives you a unique opportunity to ensure this bill does not pass as is. Every senator, regardless of committee assignment, has the opportunity to weigh in on this legislation. It only takes one senator's demand that these issues be fixed in order to stop this Trojan horse from destroying existing whistleblower protections. That senator can be yours. Please take action and contact your senator today. End quote. I strongly encourage all of my American listeners to go to the National Whistleblower Center website by following the link from CorbettReport.com in order to find out more about this legislation which is being hotlined and what you can do to help prevent it. And of course, the incredible, unbelievable suppression of vital information that we've seen time and time again tends to leave us jaded about the entire political process, and perhaps rightly so. But all I know is that if we sit down and let this legislation be passed as is without even voicing a complaint or letting other people know about the problems with this legislation, then things will only get worse from here. But assuming that we can prevent S-372 from being hotlined, it is self-evident that the legislative process for protecting whistleblower rights can only go so far. At the end of the day, if the whistleblower is not able to get their story out to a larger audience, then it will always be all too easy to suppress the information that is trying to come out. But that is exactly why recent developments have been so phenomenal and so game-changing. A technology that was barely in its infancy when 9-11 itself actually occurred is now becoming a fully-fledged tool for the average citizen to wield in the quest for truth. And the effect that it is having on whistleblowing is incredible. I speak, of course, of the internet and of the phenomenon of sites like WikiLeaks. Now, from the world of art to the murky depths of reality, journalist Jacques Peressi has been in search of the truth, and he's found it with anonymous whistleblowing internet site WikiLeaks, the brown paper envelope of the digital age, striking fear into the hearts of everyone with something to hide. Hello, welcome to the opening of an item about investigative journalism. There's an investigative journalist, that's me trying to look moody and not fall over in the snow as I go in search of another scoop. Scoops are thin on the ground, but even if I was to get one, I probably wouldn't be able to report it. There are currently 300 injunctions out. That's gagging orders protecting the secrets of government and big business. London is the go-to place if you want to keep something secret. Tiger Woods' lawyers came to London when they wanted an injunction to prevent pictures being published around the world. Yet at this very moment of clampdown, something has emerged that could set us free in a whole new way. A portal via an obscure website, 
on which anyone in the world can post any leak whatsoever. It's called WikiLeaks, and no, it's absolutely nothing to do with Wikipedia. Though no one outside of the webosphere has even heard of WikiLeaks, the fact is that it's becoming massively important. Making public the BMP membership lists, and military documents regarding the legality of the war in Iraq. It's been said that in just three years, WikiLeaks has published more scoops than the Washington Post has in 30. Alan, can you tell me when you first heard about WikiLeaks? I think I first heard about WikiLeaks a couple of years ago, and I don't know that I took it really seriously until I, I met a lawyer at a party who specialised in media stuff. Uh, and she just said that WikiLeaks was the one thing that the, the best lawyers in London, who tend to be the best lawyers in, in closing down information, had yet to work out how to crack this. So it makes injunction useless, doesn't it? It presents the, the English courts with a, with a big problem, um, because if you've got a, a, a website that is essentially international or, or beyond national, that is operating to its own rules, then a court injunction is meaningless. Do you think that it's going to change the idea of an investigative journalist and what investigative journalism is? Well, I, th I think it is already changing the, the idea of investigation. So that idea of, of publishing raw source material uh, is, a, is a very powerful one. WikiLeaks has allowed us to access huge dossiers of secret information. They've even come to the aid of bloggers, such as Guido Fawkes, who broke the Northern Rock email scandal, the first warning signs of the impending financial meltdown. He escaped litigation by publishing the email not on his site, but on WikiLeaks. So you're quite open about the fact you'd use WikiLeaks? Oh, no, I've written to all the law firms. I've written to all the main law firms saying that if they send me a super injunction anymore, I will use my own judgment, and if I think it's in the public interest, I will give it to WikiLeaks. I've got a lot less injunctions since then. WikiLeaks preserves the anonymity of the leaker by bouncing the leak through a network of servers around the world. The more people who use the network, the harder it becomes to unpick. Or at least that's how it's supposed to work. But do you think there's going to become a moment where, <clears throat> you know, the life of a, a kind of Chinese dissident is on the line, you know, because of a decision that WikiLeaks make? That's happened already. It's happened, um, Yahoo gave up the IP address, the, the postcode for the internet, of one of its email users, and that guy ended up in jail. So, beware. Some ways, I think you're better off sending um, a letter. But this is a major, major shift. I mean, it's going to shift the power balance from those people over there to people like you. I think it is, because the only way they can stop it is by going down the uh, Chinese and Iranian route, which is having the Great Firewall of China. They're going to have to decide whether they want to be very authoritarian and all the restrictions that places on people. Now, Google pulling out of China because it's too authoritarian is a real possibility. Mm. So it, there's a cost to being that kind of restrictive. The internet may provide an opportunity to bring governments down, but it also provides an opportunity for unprecedented surveillance. I'm trying to contact John Young, a pioneer of internet leaking, a libertarian who believes in the complete freedom to publish absolutely anything, including our conversation which he posted in its dull entirety hours after we spoke. Looks like we've lost connection. He's an ultra-suspicionist to boot, and wisely suspicious of me. First of all, I think the Internet is a, is a gigantic spying machine. I think that anyone who thinks that it's, that, that it's not surveilling um, everyone that's using it is, is deceiving themselves. What to you are the limitations of WikiLeaks? What are the problems with WikiLeaks? Well, first I should say it's a great organization. They're doing a wonderful job, uh, and 
whatever reservations I have about them is not terribly important. I think that we need a lot more WikiLeaks than just one. And that raises one issue, which is that um, um, we need multiple WikiLeaks. It's dangerous to have only one or two. I've had a hard time speaking to anyone connected with the site, but at the last minute I finally had word that Julian Assange, the man behind it all, is willing to talk to me. The problem is he's in Iceland and I'm stuck in London. But there is a solution. Interview him over the airwaves. Cue second weird interview scenario of the film. Hello, is Julian there? Speaking, Jack. Hello, Julian. Um, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. I much appreciate it. You're welcome. You're in quite a sort of unique position in history and that you can actually publish on the internet and yet the libel laws in each country are specific to that country and therefore there's a sort of lag. They haven't yet caught up with you. They don't really know how to deal with you when it appears on WikiLeaks. The first time in history uh, where there has been, at least for significant documents, a truly free press, um, that's never happened before. There is an interesting question as to what will be the free press standard uh, of the 21st century because all media is moving onto the internet. So will it be the, the union of good laws across the world that protect our freedom of press, which protects democracy, or will it be the intersection of those laws? Uh, will our standards be those of China uh, or the UK, or will they be standards that are more akin to the, the values of the United States and the the values and standards of countries like Sweden. There's a fork in the road for journalism, and we can go one way or the other. Um, and uh, everyone should try and decide and fight to go in the way that will protect uh, our ability and everyone's ability uh, to communicate important information to the public. Isn't it the case, Julian, that sort of gathering attention to yourselves leaves you vulnerable? It's a bit like putting up a flag to government saying, shoot me. What we've found in practice is that uh, by gathering attention, we have generated a lot of support. So we have an enormous support base now uh, in the general community, but especially amongst the press. So it's extremely hard uh, to successfully attack us. And as a result, we have become a sort of vanguard of journalism. So we take the hardest publishing cases in the world and deal with them. And by doing that, we create a space behind us that permits other people to successfully publish. Um, we have, to a degree, um, redefined what is normal. And because we've been going three years now, uh, we have become part of the status quo of the Internet. Uh, and that's a really important outcome. We're at an extraordinary moment. Via WikiLeaks, investigative journalism is turning a corner into a new world. But the really exciting thing is that in five years' time, people like me will be out of a job because everyone will have the tools to be an investigative journalist. And no one, no matter how good their lawyers will be, will be able to stop that. But, of course, as is to be expected with a phenomenon so powerful and with such potential to change the nature of the game that's being played entirely, it is already under attack. Perhaps one of the early signs of the attack on these types of sites like WikiLeaks that help to spread the information that the controlled corporate media will not spread and that the controlled government systems will not protect came in December of last year when we had this story 
from Infowars.com, Yahoo threatens Cryptome over leaked surveillance document. And if that request did not come to much, a more recent one certainly did. From February 24th, 2010, from Wired.com, Microsoft takes down whistleblower site. Read the secret doc here. Quote, Microsoft has managed to do what a roomful of secretive three-letter government agencies have wanted to do for years. Get the whistleblowing government document-sharing site Cryptome shut down. Microsoft dropped a DMCA notice alleging copyright infringement on Cryptome's proprietor John Young on Tuesday after he posted a Microsoft surveillance compliance document that the company gives to law enforcement agents seeking information on Microsoft users. Young filed a counterclaim on Wednesday, arguing he had a fair use to publish the document a full day before the Thursday deadline set by his hosting provider, Network Solutions. Regardless, Cryptome was shut down by Network Solutions and its domain name locked on Wednesday, shuttering a site that thumbed its nose at the government since 1996, posting thousands of documents that the feds would prefer never saw the light of day. Microsoft did not return a call for comment by press time. End quote. Thankfully, that story had a relatively quick and relatively painless ending. From the 26th of February on PCWorld.com, Microsoft relents, Cryptome returns. Quote, Cryptome is back online. The site which leaked a document summarizing Microsoft's dealing with law enforcement agencies was shuttered by its service provider, Network Solutions, after Microsoft filed a Digital Millennium Copyright Act complaint. Microsoft has since withdrawn the complaint and Network Solutions has pushed Cryptome live. We would like to notify you that Microsoft has contacted us regarding www.cryptome.org. Microsoft has withdrawn their DMCA complaint. As a result, www.cryptome.org has been reactivated and this matter has been closed. Please allow time for the reactivation to propagate throughout the various servers around the world. Network Solutions wrote in an email to John Young, Cryptome's proprietor. Meanwhile, Microsoft turned on its PR machine and released a statement explaining its involvement in the case. Like all service providers, Microsoft must respond to lawful requests from law enforcement agencies to provide information related to criminal investigations. We take our responsibility to protect our customers' privacy very seriously, so we have specific guidelines that we use when responding to law enforcement requests. In this case, we did not ask that this site be taken down, only that Microsoft copyrighted content be removed. We are requesting to have the site restored and are no longer seeking the document's removal, Microsoft said. End quote. Well, that round is over, and it looks like the good guys won. But, of course, that is only round one in what threatens to be a very long and very drawn-out fight. And unfortunately, the other side has limitless resources at their disposal, and the good guys, as always, are fighting with two hands and one foot tied behind their back. An example of that came from Earlier this month, February 2nd, 2010, from smh.com.au, WikiLeaks shuts down, unable to plug funding gap. Quote, The anonymous whistleblower website WikiLeaks, which has been a thorn in the side of government and big business for three years, has shut down temporarily because it has run out of money. The document repository, founded by an Australian living in East Africa, has been the catalyst for countless front-page stories around the world. 
It has exposed serious business and political corruption and sparked a political scandal in Australia when it published the federal government's secret blacklist of banned websites. In a message posted on the site, founder Julian Assange appealed for donations from the public, saying he had received hundreds of thousands of pages relating to corrupt banks, the U.S. detainee system, the Iraq War, China, the U.N., and many others, but did not have the resources to release them. The site, which claims to be non-profit and does not accept donations from government or corporations, costs about $600,000 U.S. a year to run, including staff. But so far, only $130,000 has been raised for this year. Even $10 will pay to put one of these reports into another 10,000 hands, and $1,000 a million, Assange wrote. End quote. That story, too, was to have a relatively prompt and relatively happy resolution from the 4th of February 2010, theregister.co.uk. WikiLeaks finds cash to continue. Don't whistleblow it all at once. Quote, Whistleblowing site WikiLeaks has secured enough money and donations to resume operations. The site stopped publishing leaked documents in December in order to concentrate on a pledge drive aimed at raising a minimum of $200,000 to keep the lights on and $600,000 if staff were to be paid. WikiLeaks also canvassed for technical support and legal help. In an update via Twitter late on Wednesday night, WikiLeaks announced that it had reached its minimum target. Achieved minimum fundraising goal, $200,000 out of $600,000. We're back fighting for another year, even if we have to eat rice to do it. End quote. And so the fight resumes, and it is us versus them. And once again, resources prove to be one of the deciding factors. And while the good guys are barely managing to scrape by, they are still having incredible successes in spreading this information to more and more and more people. And now, just when we are on the brink of one of the most important revolutions in the history of humanity, with a revolution in knowledge and the spread of information throughout our society, threatening to topple the systems of control that have governed our society for centuries, if not millennia. Along comes one of the whistleblowers himself to lend a hand to the sites that are making this revolution possible. I refer to Richard Andrew Grove, and I refer to the documentary which we have referred to many times so far in this episode, 2020 Hindsight, Censorship on the Frontline. As my listeners will know, that was released on the Corbett Reports YouTube channel last week, and of course is available on the YouTube channels of several other YouTube users, including the documentary filmmaker's own Divergent Films YouTube channel, and links to that will be available in the documentation section for today's episode. Now, of course, the film is available in its entirety online to watch for free, and I certainly hope that people will use that to their advantage and spread that link around to anyone and everyone who is interested in such information. But if you are interested in supporting the media that is breaking through the blockade that has kept this information suppressed for years, and which could not even be broken by people like Lowell Bergman, then you are in the right place. Because Richard Andrew Grove has done a remarkable thing. He has offered to the webmasters of five websites free DVDs of his new 
documentary feature 2020 hindsight censorship on the front line. For a limited time and until further notice, if you want to get one of these DVDs, which includes 2020 hindsight censorship on the front line, as well as Project Constellation, the 2006 audio recording of Richard Andrew Grove's story, which we have also referred to in this podcast, as well as episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, which is from peacerevolution.org and includes the Million Dollar Education, and a DVD-ROM featuring numerous useful media files, then all you have to do is donate $10 to any one of those five websites. Maria.net, GnosticMedia.com, DeadlineLive.info, MediaMonarchy.com, or yours truly, CorbettReport.com. When you donate $10 or more to any one of those websites, you can receive 2020 Hindsight, Censorship on the Frontline, and the bonus features on that DVD. This is an incredible way to empower those sites which are part of the revolution, the sites that are helping to break down the barriers that have existed for so long between the whistleblowers and the information they are trying to bring to us. The fact that this idea comes from and was instituted by one of the whistleblowers themselves is in fact remarkable and I am honored to be taking part in this scheme. Now, of course, since I recently had a funding drive for the hosting fees for CorbettReport.com, it's only fair of me to extend this offer retroactively to cover all of those who made their recent donation to the Corbett Report, and I will be contacting all 13 of you in the next week or two in order to get the details so you can get your hands on your copy of the DVD. To everyone else, please consider going to one of the five sites, and of course all of them will be linked up in the documentation section on CorbettReport.com, and make your donation today to help support the whistleblowers and their cause. For those who do want to offer their support to the Corbett Report, of course you can do so by clicking the donate button on the front page of CorbettReport.com, and by tomorrow, that is Monday the 1st of March 2010, I hope to have a short article up on the front page explaining this donation offer. Once again, my sincere thanks to Richard Andrew Grove of PeaceRevolution.org and TragedyAndHope.com for this incredible and magnanimous gesture, and let's hope this is the seed of something much greater to come. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this censorship-free exploration of some of the most important information of our age. And if you do find this information interesting and helpful, please help to spread it everywhere. You are the nervous system of this planet. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 120 of the Corbett Report, Economics 101.